you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 34. At the outset, I must say that this is one of those passages of Scripture that really tests the mettle of an expositor and proves whether or not you're committed to expositionally preaching through passages of the Bible. Because truth be told, if I'm honest, I'd rather skip this. I'd really rather skip this chapter. And perhaps if it were just a book, maybe even just a religious book, I would. But it's not just a book. As Bob just said, it's the inspired Word of God. And yet this is a chapter that doesn't mention God once. It's a chapter that is as uncomfortable to read as it will be for you to hear it read. It's a chapter in which all the characters are, none of the characters are innocent, none of them. One commentator says there is ostensibly nothing commendable in Genesis chapter 34. It's a chapter of scripture of which the Old Testament scholar of the 1900s, Herbert C. Leopold, said in his commentary section that dealt with homiletical suggestions, in other words, how to preach particular passages, he said this of this chapter. We may wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever drew a text from this chapter. That statement gave me pause this week. He goes on and says, It is rightly evaluated by the more mature mind and could be treated to advantage before a men's Bible class. But we cannot venture to offer homiletical suggestions for its treatment. Well, maybe I do lack what H.C. Leopold calls proper discernment. But I prefer to believe the promise of 2 Timothy 3.16, as Bob quoted, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. All of Scripture includes this. So that means there must be something profitable here for us in this chapter. Something about which we we must be taught. Something that will reprove us and rebuke us. Something about this that will bring correction to how we live or think and act. Something that will train us for righteousness. So church in faith, let us turn to God's word. And allow the Lord to breathe out his breath to us in Genesis chapter 34 and trust the Spirit to teach us. Let's read the entire chapter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, when she had born, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. 
Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will, and I will give it, whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young Man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the, came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their city, their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray. Father, in faith, we thank you for your word, and we ask in Jesus' name that you would do what you promised to do, and that is to bring us profit from it. Father, to teach us, to reprove us, to change us in some way, to correct us, to train us for righteousness, for your glory, so that we might look more like your son, Jesus, that we as the people of God might act like the people of God and give you glory in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we left Jacob last week, at the end of chapter 33, the Lord had delivered him, as he had prayed to the Lord to do, the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of his brother Esau's vengeance. 
And at the end of the chapter, we saw that he had settled outside of Shechem. As we learn in chapter 33 and in chapter 34, Shechem is both a person and a place. It's a person in that it's the the prince of of the city, the son of Hamor, but it's also the city itself. And so at the end of chapter 33, Jacob buys a piece of land from Shechem and settles and encamps outside of the city of Shechem. And shortly after he arrives, as we see in chapter 34, the trouble begins to ensue. There there are three main sections in chapter 34. First of all, there's the defilement in in verses 1 and 2, where Dinah, this teenage girl, is brutally treated, inhumanely treated at the hands of Shechem. And then in verses 3 through 24, where we see the bulk of the dialogue in this chapter, we have the discussion as a result of what happened. And then in verses 25 through 31, we have the destruction that ensues as we see. So let's look first at the defilement, verses 1 and 2. We're told in verse 1 that Dinah, Jacob's daughter, went out to see the women of the land. Now we should note here that this was very unwise and unsafe, dangerous for her to do. For a woman of her age, at this age, she's about, she's a teenager, she's a teenage girl. To leave the safety of the family encamped outside of the city. Remember, Jacob camped outside of the city. To leave that, the safety of their family camp, and to venture without a chaperone into this strange Canaanite city was both unwise and unsafe. Now, we should be very, very clear at this point. Let me, let me be very clear. This is not Dinah's fault. She is not to blame. 100% of the blame lies at the feet of Shechem, who committed this awful act. But her actions here were unwise and unsafe. She wrongly stepped out of the safe boundaries that God had set for her and her family had set for her, and she wandered into the strange Canaanite city and put herself at great risk. Young people, I want to make sure that you hear an important lesson here, and that is that the rules and restrictions that your parents set for you, though they may seem old-fashioned and out-of-date and unnecessary, they are meant to protect you and to keep you safe. And it is unwise and it is unsafe to step outside of those boundaries. But I think we should also, as fathers, take a note here, that it is our responsibility to both set those boundaries and to enforce those boundaries. We don't know the circumstances of why Dinah ventured into the city, but as we'll later see from Jacob's pitiful response and reaction, it's likely that that he didn't care for Dinah quite as much as he would have if she had been the daughter of Rachel, his most loved wife. She's the daughter of Leah, He got Leah by accident, as we recall from earlier in Genesis. And so perhaps he wasn't looking carefully out enough for Dinah as he should. Wasn't reinforcing those boundaries as a good father should. 
But for whatever reason, she crosses the boundaries and she heads into the city. And she soon catches the eye of the prince of the city, Shechem. And Shechem sees, and what he sees, he wants. And so what he wants, he takes. And the words that are used here by Moses are important. He seized her. This isn't lovingly. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. It should go without saying, but in this crazy mixed up world, we should be unequivocal that this was wrong. It was a sin. It was shameful. And it was a crime, both in their day and in ours. We don't know all the details of how this occurred, but it doesn't take much of imagination to see what's going on here. He's a prince. He's the second most powerful person in this land. As we'll see later, he is, he is the most honored of Hamor's sons. And so he's very powerful, very influential. And he uses his power and his influence to take advantage of someone who is weak and who is vulnerable just to satisfy his own sexual desires this is wrong and parents of boys moms and dads who have sons it is our responsibility to raise young men who will honor and nurture and protect women not prey upon them like animals like Shechem did and so Dinah is violated she is humiliated she is defiled Now let's move on to the discussion, which is the bulk of this chapter, verses 3 through 24. And the discussion that ensues in these verses can be further divided into two parts. First of all, in verses 3 through 7 are the reactions, the reactions of these characters to what happened. And then there are the negotiations about how they're going to work this out. So let's look first at the different reactions. Remember here that the The defilement of Dinah, this young woman, was an injustice. It was an injustice. It was not just. It was not fair. It was not right. It was wrong. It was an injustice. And so as we look at these reactions, we recognize that they are various reactions of various people to to a very specific injustice that occurred. So what were their reactions to this injustice? The first is the reaction of Shechem that we see in verses 3 through 4. Shechem himself. We're told in verse 3 that Shechem's soul was drawn to Dinah and that he loved her and spoke tenderly to her. Well, isn't that sweet? I'm being sarcastic. He didn't love her. This isn't love. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination here, again, to to discern what's going on with Shechem. He may think that he loves her. But but this, if you love someone, you don't treat them like he did. This isn't love. Pastor Matt, uh, a couple weeks ago, gave a great exposition on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I commend it to you highly. Uh, Two excellent sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 talks about what love is and the way Shechem treats Dinah here does not match up well with that at all. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. We could go on. Shechem, Shechem did not love Dinah. Young women, please hear me here. This is not the way a man loves a woman. This is lust, not love. This is dishonoring, not honoring. This is selfishness, not self-giving, as love is. Just look at the way that he speaks with his father in verse 4. He says, get me this girl for my wife. What respectful person speaks to their father like that? that that's, that's an imperative verb here. He's issuing a command to his father. Give me this girl. A man who desires to respect his father doesn't speak to his father like this. And sons who haven't learned how to respect their parents is going to have a hard time respecting a woman. Get me this girl. The, the word there for girl literally means this young girl. So he's robbing the cradle here, this teenager. So Shechem's response to this injustice is first to justify it. It's okay because I love her. What I did is all right because I love her. Second of all, it is completely selfish. I wanted her, and so I took her. And now I want her more, and so I'm going to demand that my father gets her for my wife. He's not looking out for what's best for Dinah. He's not looking out for what's proper and what's right and what's good. But just whatever is going to satisfy his own pleasure. So that's the response of Shechem to this injustice. Next is the response of Jacob. Jacob here is surprisingly, disappointingly passive and silent. His response is very disappointing here. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 we're told that after hearing about it, he holds his peace until his sons come in from the field. He holds his peace? This is his daughter. Where's the outrage? Where's the righteous anger and indignation that at least the brothers have? This is his daughter that this has happened to. And he holds his peace? What is that? What father does that? Jacob's reaction to this injustice at the hands of his own daughter is the most surprising reaction of any of them in this chapter. He's silent, he's passive, and he almost seems like he's emotionally aloof about this. And again, we don't know why, but perhaps it's because Dinah was the daughter of, of Leah. Again, he's playing favorites, which that in itself is going to lead to further sin in Jacob's family as the story goes on in the ensuing verses and chapters. Perhaps if Rachel, the most loved wife, perhaps if she had had a daughter and this had happened to her, Jacob would have reacted differently. We don't know. But regardless, his reaction here is very disappointing. Next in verse 6 is the reaction of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now he's the king. He's the pagan king. And his reaction is more honorable than Jacob's, the patriarch. At least Hamor is willing to, to talk about it. Jacob, the believer, is trying to sweep it under the rug, hide in the closet, and avoid the problem. While Hamor, the pagan, is at least a willing to address it. And then finally, and most importantly, 
we have the reaction of Jacob's sons. We're told in verse 7 that when they heard what happened, they became indignant and very angry, which is a very appropriate response to what happened to their sister. Now, as it turns out, as we'll see, their anger was not bridled, and it blew up out of control and exploded And in turn, they only added further injustice to the mix, as we'll see. But for now, for now we see it is right and it is good, their reaction here of righteous anger and indignation. Now, in verse 8, the discussion changes from the reaction to the discussion about how they're going to work this out. So first we have, in verses 8 through 10, Hamor's offer. And I'll just summarize it for you. Hamor basically says, hey, let's make the best out of a bad situation. Go ahead and let Dinah marry my son, and then let that be the beginning of a brand new day for us, where Canaanites and Hebrews have this love feast, and we just all intermarry with one another and live in the same land. And just imagine the commerce that will happen. Imagine the trade that will happen. Imagine how your wealth will increase and how you will acquire much land as a result of this great deal. Paints a very rosy picture. picture. There's one big problem with Hamor's offer here, and that is that everything that Hamor offers to Jacob here, the Lord has already promised to him except for the intermarriage with the Canaanites. And so Jacob here is left, it's up to him here to lead his family to just trust God, that God will fulfill his promises in his way, in his timing, with his plan, without any shortcuts by intermarrying with the Canaanites. That's what he should do. It's not what he does do, but it's what he should, should do. So that's Hamor's offer. Then Shechem, Shechem has the audacity to open his mouth in the setting, And you can just imagine Jacob's son's blood began to boil as soon as this guy opens his mouth here. But he has something to offer. And he says in verse 11, 12, basically he tries to buy Dinah. He says, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Again, this is not what love looks like. You can't even call her by name here. He refers to her as the woman. She has a name. It's Dinah. He, he, he can't even call her by Maybe he doesn't even know her name. He refers to her often as the woman or this girl. He's treating her just like the brothers will later accuse him of in verse 31, like a prostitute. He thinks he's being so generous here by offering this enormous price for her hand in marriage, but the brothers see through his deception. The brothers see what really is happening here. He's treating her like a prostitute. He's trying to buy her with his own money in order to satisfy his own selfish appetite. Now there's one other thing that we should note here about Shechem and what he says, and that is what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, that was really wrong, I shouldn't have done that. 
He doesn't apologize. He doesn't admit guilt. He doesn't admit that he did anything wrong here. There's no remorse, which is very telling of where his heart is. And so this leads subsequently to the deception of the brothers in verses 13 through 17. So now the brothers enter the negotiation. Jacob's sons, which by the way should only underline and put in boldface font here how passive Jacob was being. This is the father's responsibility to take care of this. This is the father's responsibility. But Jacob abdicates his responsibility. He is passive. He's holding his peace. And so the brothers at least have the courage to step in and take their father's place. And so they do. Now Moses tells us in verse 13 that the brothers are speaking deceptively here. And so they're not negotiating in good faith. But can you blame them because of what happened here? And in fact, Moses even tells us um, that they did this because Shechem had mistreated their sister Dinah. Now, whether or not they were justified in being deceptive here is maybe a good debate for a Christian ethics class, but at least in the text, Moses seems to indicate that he's excusing them because of what they did to what he did to their sister Dinah. So what is their deception? In verses 13 through 17, essentially this is what they tell Shechem. Okay, we'll let you do this. We'll let you marry her. We'll accept your plan of intermarrying with your your daughters. We'll accept your offer. We'll accept this plan on one condition if you become as we are and become circumcised. Now, we know circumcision was given to Abraham and the descendants of Abraham earlier in the story of Genesis as a sign of God's covenant relationship with them, that they would be God's people and that he would be their God. It was a very somber and serious ceremony filled with symbolism and important meaning, marking out God's people whom he would protect and love, and on whom he would set his steadfast love forever. It was a serious covenant sign. And what are the brothers doing here? They're weaponizing it for their own vengeance, for their own murderous revenge. They are turning God's covenant sign into something that they're using to deceive so that they can carry out their vengeance. So we begin to see that the brothers are blind in their rage against Shechem. And they're willing to stoop pretty low in order to get vengeance. The final part of this negotiation, verses 18 through 24, Hamor and Shechem accept the plan. Say, okay, sounds good, we'll do this. They go back to the men of the city and they, they speak to them to try to convince them to go along with it because they all have to go along with it in accordance with Jacob's son's plans. And by the way, when they talk to the men of the city, we should note here that when they speak to them, it's all positives about this. They don't mention any of the negatives of this plan. Look at verses 21 through 23. They speak to the men of the city and they say, these men, referring to the Hebrews, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. 
Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, look at their motivation here. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. No mention of Shechem's rape of Dinah at all. Left that little nugget out. That's the whole reason there is even this opportunity to engage in this conversation with the Hebrews in the beginning. No, it's all about more land, more property, more trade. All we need to do is get circumcised. And so they agreed to it. And then the narrative of the chapter moves into the final section, the destruction in verses 25 through 31. We're told in verse 25 that on the third day when they were sore, the men of Shechem that is, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure. Look what it says. And killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So not only did they kill Hamor and Shechem, they kill all the men of the city. All of whom, except for Hamor and Shechem, are presumably innocent in this. They didn't even know. They, they, weren't, even, they weren't even told about Shechem's rape of Dinah. But that doesn't matter to Simeon and Levi. In their blind rage, the innocent are killed along with the guilty. But they don't stop there. It gets worse. Look at verse 27 and following. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered and so they murder all the men and they steal everything else they plunder the city they take all their possessions all their animals all their wealth all that was in their house they said including their wives their women and their children and they leave nothing but destruction behind talk about giving full vent to your anger and then look at Jacob's response to this in verse 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. What's Jacob's focus here? You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Wrong as they were to kill all the men of the city and to plunder the city, at least they were thinking about somebody other than themselves. Their focus, what they were worried about, was Dinah, their sister. Her safety, her honor. What was Jacob worried about? He was worried about his own image. I'm going to stink to the people of this land. He was worried about 
how people are going to see him, what he was going to look like. He's worried about his own safety. Very disappointing. But you know, this whole chapter is disappointing. Again, as one commentator noted, there is ostensibly nothing about Genesis chapter 34 that is commendable. And so what is it in this chapter that is profitable to us? Surely, surely when the Apostle Paul said all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, surely, surely he meant some scripture, right? Sure, surely he meant most scripture. Surely he meant almost everything in scripture except for passages like Genesis chapter 34. No, he said all scripture, and all scripture does include chapter 34. And so what is it that is profitable here for us? What do we learn, and how do we apply it? Well, there could be many, many lessons from this, some of which we've already noted in passing. But there are four broad ones that I think I I want to make particular note of this morning. First of all, as we've said before, when we run into a passage of scripture like this, it should be an encouragement to us as to the reliability of God's word. Think about it. If you were writing a book, coming up with a story to try to explain a made-up religion, a fake religion, if you were writing a book to try to to explain how that fake made-up religion started, who among us would include a story like this? None of us. The fact that this included, is included in the canon of Scripture points to the divine origin of Scripture, that it comes from God, not from man, because no man would put this here if he was trying to make up the story. So this points to the divine origin of this book and the divine providence which oversaw the canonization of it. Because there's no other logical explanation for the inclusion of a story like this in the Word of God. Secondly, There are lots of lessons here about the depravity of man. Nobody's innocent here, except for maybe the men of Shechem in this story, which, by the way, they're they're, they're pagan men, so they're not innocent. Just Nobody's innocent, but in the confines of this story, they're not seen in any sort of sin, but everybody else has that stain on them. Jacob, Shechem, Hamor, Simeon, Levi. And consider the far-reaching consequences of their sins consider who was impacted by their sin this is an important lesson for us think about Shechem what what were the result of his actions an entire city was mowed down all the men of the city were killed their lives were ended because of his selfish and sinful choices and the entire city was plundered as a result of... He thought, he thought this was just about himself. You know, he's just, just satisfying his own selfish appetite. But it ended up destroying an entire city. What about Jacob? We see his passivity here. We see his silence, perhaps his apathy here. And these are sins which will take root in his sons and will have far-reaching effects on his family for generations. And then we look at Simeon and Levi and their unbridled anger here that they give full vent to. They end up bringing a curse 
on their families and the tribes after which they are named. In, in Genesis chapter 49, as their father Jacob is dying on his deathbed, he pronounces in Genesis 49 blessings on his sons and prophecies over his sons and the families and the tribes that they'll be named after. When he comes to Simeon and Levi, listen to what he says. This is sobering. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Imagine what Moses felt as he was writing these words. Moses is a Levite. And he's writing these words about his ancestral, uh, his tribal ancestor. As every man would later come from the tribe of Levi who would serve in the temple, they would be reminded of this skeleton in their family closet. These examples should remind us that our sins never affect just us. The consequences of our sins are far-reaching, and they don't affect just us. They often will affect our children, our family, our friends, our church, and often we don't even see the effects to which our sins will have consequences on those around us and those who come after us. Our sins are never just about us. Those we love usually end up bearing a very heavy weight as a result of the consequences of them. It is a sobering thought. Thirdly, I think there's also lessons here about how to respond to injustice. I think there's two sides of the horse that I see here that we need to be careful of not falling off of. On the one hand, there's one side of the horse, which is Jacob's side of the horse, which is the response of silence and passivity in the face of injustice. But listen to what Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9 says. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Church scripture encourages Christ followers to not only speak out against injustice, but to act on behalf of those who are mistreated, no matter what that mistreatment is. And so our passivity and our silence in the face of injustice is both wrong and unchristian and unbiblical. When we see injustice, we should speak up. We should call it what it is. And we should do what, what we can within the confines of what God has given us opportunity to do to address it. But there's another side of the horse that we need to be careful of. And the other side of the horse is that of adding injustice to injustice. That's what Simeon and Levi did. They added injustice to injustice. A grievous injustice had been committed against their sister, Dinah. And they were right to be angry and indignant 
And they were right, by the way, to go and try to rescue her. They were right to do that. But clearly their actions went far beyond the scope of rescuing their sister. They were out for revenge. They took it upon themselves to seek vengeance. Their anger was so unbridled that they ended up murdering innocent people and destroying an entire city. Friends, just because we are angry because of a real injustice, it doesn't give us the right to commit further injustice. And I think there is application for us today for us to consider on both sides of that horse. This is a dark chapter, isn't it? The darkness of sin, the darkness of injustice. But church, whenever we see darkness in Scripture, wherever we find it, it should always point us to the light of the gospel and the hope that we find there. So that's the final lesson that I see here, and that is that it points to the hope of the gospel. Because the story doesn't end here. The story doesn't end in Shechem. It goes on. This is part of a bigger picture. And so if we, if we kind of back up to 30,000 feet, 40,000, 50,000 feet, what is God doing here? What is God doing here? He's keeping his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to build a nation. He's building a nation. And he said it would be a great nation. And that it would be a nation through whom one day all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that would happen when he brings his son through that nation. This one who would be the seed of the woman who would destroy forever the power of sin and death by crushing the head of the serpent. So there's hope. There's hope for us. And church, we need that hope. Because as we go through a chapter like this, we ought to see ourselves identifying with the brokenness that we see in it. We have observed injustice. We have suffered injustice, some more than others. But friends, we have all of us also perpetrated injustice, both against man and against God. And the gospel is all about justice. For the injustice that we have suffered in this life, we're told in Scripture that every injustice will one day receive its due. And every wrongdoer will be met with divine justice. Listen to Colossians 3.25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. The book of Revelation tells us that the prayers of the saints will rise up as an incense, as like, like, like the smoke of incense to the nostrils of God, and that this moves him to judge the nations. To those who have suffered injustice, be encouraged that though we are not promised perfect justice in this life, perfect justice is coming. Divine justice is coming. And it will come swiftly and it will be perfect. And all wrongs will be righted one day. But anytime we talk about justice and the gospel, we must admit 
that we're the ones who deserve justice. We are sinners. We're the rebels who have perpetrated great injustice against a holy and righteous God. And we deserve justice. And friends, justice has been served at the cross. At the cross of Calvary, the divine justice of God and the divine grace of God meet in the face of Christ. May we who have been kissed by that divine grace and for whom God has poured out his divine justice on Christ on our behalf for our sins, may we look at the sin and injustice in a story like this and give God praise and thanksgiving and glory because he has withheld, mercifully withheld from us what we deserve, which is judgment. And he has graciously given to us that which we don't deserve, which is forgiveness, eternal life, and reconciliation to the Father. And if you have not come to Christ in saving faith, then let me ask you a question. Are you any different from Shechem? Are you any different from Jacob and Simeon and Levi? Are you without blemish? Are you blameless before God? Of course not. You know that. And so my follow-up question is, what are you banking on to make you right with God? Are you banking on your own efforts to try to clean yourself up and wipe away that stain? The Bible, the testimony of the Bible is that that is folly. It is a waste of time and energy because it's useless and it'll never work. The stain of sin is too pervasive on your soul. And no amount of working and trying to be better on your part is ever going to change that. It's never going to make a dent in removing that stain. It's impossible. It'll never work. You can't. But Jesus can, and Jesus did, when he died on the cross for sinners like you and I. So you have a choice, and it's a real choice. You can either keep trying to wipe the stain of sin off of your own soul in hopes of making yourself right before God. Or you can surrender to Christ. You can trust in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection as your only hope to be rescued from what you deserve. I beg of you on behalf of God, be reconciled to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin, turn away from it, and trust in Christ as your only hope for rescue. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for passages of Scripture like this, Lord, that in our private devotions we might be tempted to pass over, that we might perhaps in the flesh superficially cringe at. But Lord, we're thankful that you use even passages of Scripture like this to train us for righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that that's what happens this morning. After us being exposed to your word and the cautions and the warnings that are here, Lord, that you train us, young people, that you train us, Lord, that you train us as parents, as fathers and mothers, as followers of Jesus, that you train us in righteousness 
that we might give you glory with our lives. But Lord, we know, we're, we, we know because we identify with the brokenness that we see here, that our only hope is not to try to be better and be more righteous. Our only hope to be made right with you is because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And, we th- and so, Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have shown us in Christ. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to transform us into his likeness so that through our lives you might receive great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.